Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of blogs on from poverty to power. The heat wave has passed. Um, it was really pretty bad actually. Here in London, got up to 38 degrees. Uh, we're not geared for it. I was cycling around in a t-shirt, pre-wet in a bath just to get to places. Um, and it's just so nice that it's now back to the normal chilly English summer days. Um, very serious climate change implications. If that kind of stuff is happening regularly, a lot of people are going to suffer in the UK, let alone in hotter countries. Anyway, um, on with the posts. Um, first, first post up was the links I liked, the way I usually start the week. But it actually began with some rather sad news, which is uh, a very good man has died too early. Jeremy Hobbs, who was a friend, a colleague. Uh, he was at Oxfam for over two decades. He was Oxfam's first international executive director, brought the whole Oxfam international sort of edifice into uh, existence and did so with amazingly good humour, lovely, wise, funny, committed. Um, I, I, I got two things personally from him. One is um, starting meetings by saying hello, comrades, which always gets a laugh, um, but also kind of has a little edge to it that, you know, we are comrades and it's quite a nice um, uh, ironic but also uh, powerful way to start a meeting uh, but also I was relatively new to Oxfam and he showed me how to navigate the bureaucracy and get From Poverty to Power published in 2008 my first book at Oxfam um, without going completely crazy uh, and he was just genial and effective and he'll be greatly missed so R.I.P. Jeremy. Um, <clears throat> The rest of the of that post was largely devoted to the ongoing circus of British politics. I mean, just it's all gone completely bonkers. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. But one thing that jumped out at me and which I put in the blog was this lovely uh, article and then turned into a, a Twitter thread from Gemma Clark, a primary teacher based in Scotland, advising the Speaker of the House of Commons on how to manage unruly classes. So I'll just read out some of the funny bits. We've all had challenging classes at some time, but the good news is there's lots of simple things you can do. The most important thing to do is talk to the MPs who need time out today. It's important to let every day be a new start for your MPs. Next, we think about introducing some simple classroom, classroom rate routines. For example, a clap that the MPs copy, a call and answer routine, or even raising your hand and waiting for silence. While establishing these routines, it's very important to praise the MPs who are doing good listening. MPs like praise at any age and more and more will buy in. You could introduce some House of Commons points and give these to MPs who are displaying good behaviour. If your pupils are a bit excitable at certain times of day, for example after lunch, you could introduce 10 minutes of quiet reading or story time. I just thought it was great because basically they behave like a bunch of kids. And here's uh, primary teacher Gemma Clark uh, saying what she would do with, uh, with unruly kids in that situation. And it was just very, very funny. Lots of other stuff uh, on, um, uh, on the state of British politics and I, I uh, rather imagine I'll be doing more of that over the course of the summer as we, as not we, as the members of the Conservative Party choose our new Prime Minister, particularly bizarre form of election. Anyway, uh, on with the next post which was on red tape, risk and decolonisation. How can the aid sector square the circle? 
When discussing a bunch of good things in the aid sector, decolonisation, adaptive management, thinking and working politically, etc., a common complaint is that the procedures of the aid bureaucracy frustrate a lot of good intentions. On decolonisation, the main culprit is seen as compliance, a set of procedures to ensure that those receiving the money do not steal or do bad stuff with it. Given that we can't just order a bonfire of all such safeguards, how can we find workarounds that stop them becoming such a roadblock? So I was intrigued when Oxfam's Sophie Walsh got in touch to talk about the decolonising aid agenda and what this means for managing risk. Her team do that very compliance that others criticise, but is leading a process to try and get away from what she calls control-hungry approaches that exacerbate imbalances of power between donors, in this case Oxfam, and partners. These include not being too onerous in our demands for form-filling and ensuring more proportionate approaches that rework expectations that partners must drop everything whenever there's a compliance issue. Cool. I started off with some standard rants, which regular readers may be all too familiar with, but then some new light bulbs sparked, so let's start with them. How to build processes around trust. When I worked at CAFOD many years ago, part of its funding seemed to be based on, well, we've known Father Blogs for 30 years and we trust him. So we just fund his work and no questions asked. I caricature, I'm sure, and it was a long time ago, but there's a point here. With a new partner, you probably need more levels of reporting and due diligence. But as the relationship develops and trust builds, surely there should be some way of reducing the paperwork. Is that happening? And could we take donors along with us? Maybe a certification scheme, a trust star system or something? There's a downside, of course. Just funding the old boys or girls network inhibits innovation and excludes a lot of people and risks nepotism. But it's worth considering uh, what updated lessons for today's world we could take from the Father Blogs model of partnership. Second, relationship-based decolonization versus procedure-based. Perhaps this is the same point, but our processes for managing risk are formal, rational, procedural and a royal pain for those on the receiving end. Yet in some ways decolonization is an exercise in itself is an exercise in influencing, influencing donors and others to devolve power and decision making and ensuring we do so without screwing up. We know that relationships are the basic currency of influencing. If you want to influence a target then build a relationship with them, build trust and credibility as in the previous paragraph or find a messenger that they fear or respect. So how about identifying some kind of independent, locally-based intermediary or critical friend who fits this bill, a cleric, a university professor or respected elder, who could vouch for partners, increase the costs of non-compliance and feed back to the donor if the partner is not being treated right. Third, start in the lowest risk places. Some environments are more corrupt than others, for example, have more established civil society structures, stronger rule of law, etc, etc. Maybe start there and learn what does and doesn't work. Similarly, some sectors are worse than others. I pity anyone funding construction projects. Luckily, Oxfam doesn't. And internally, maybe start with some roles. Human resources, as well as compliance, are critical to unblocking the decolonization agenda. If we don't employ and reward the kind of devolutionary risk-taking mindset needed for decolonizing, we could end up with a set of risk-averse staff, whether national or international, and all your policies will achieve very little. Next, find the right donors. Lots of people in aid-giving organizations realize that we need to do more on this. 
So let's recruit one or more donors to fund some explicit experiments in decolonization and make sure they're written up and shared. Some donors should have greater risk appetite than others. Foundations, for example, shouldn't fear Daily Mail headlines as much as bilaterals who have hostile parliaments and oppositions. So let's start there. Any offers from the foundations? Next, are individuals lower or higher risk than organisations? The aid sector is organisational in form, but often individualistic in practice. A programme officer or similar will think, this is someone who's effective and trustworthy, but, uh, but then ask them to put together an organisational project proposal before they can receive money or support. Would funding leaders directly through stipends, scholarships, training, be more or less likely to trigger compliance issues? So just good to know that Oxfam's thinking about this and there were some really good uh, comments in, in the comment section. Other people are clearly thinking about it as well. Good discussion, important discussion to have. And then the final post, I only had three posts this week uh, for various reasons, including the heat, um, was a repost from one of, uh, who I think someone who I think is one of the best writers in the aid and development sector, Branko Milanovic, Serbian economist, but also all round East European intellectual, reads voraciously, writes beautifully, uh, has a blog called Global Inequality, which you should definitely bookmark and sign up to. And his latest post I just thought was so good, I asked Branko if I could just repost it, and he very kindly said yes. It's called Hopelessness, which is quite an arresting title in itself. That today's world situation is the worst since the end of the Second World War is not an excessive nor original statement. As we teeter on the brink of a nuclear war, it does not require too many words to convince people that this is so. The question is, how do we get here and is there a way out? To understand how we got here, we need to go to the end of the Cold War. That war, like World War I, ended with the two sides understanding the end differently. The West understood the end of the Cold War as its comprehensive victory over Russia. Russia understood it as the end of the ideological competition between capitalism and communism. Russia jettisoned communism and hence it was to be just another power alongside other capitalist powers. The origin of today's conflict lies in that misunderstanding. Many books have already been written about it and more will be, but this is not all. The Euro-American world took a bad turn in the 1990s because both the former West and the former East took a bad turn. The West rejected social democracy with its conciliatory attitude domestically and willingness to envisage a world without adversarial military blocs internationally for neoliberalism at home and militant expansion abroad. The former East embraced privatisation and deregulation in economics and an exclusivist nationalism in the national ideologies underlying the newly independent states. These extreme ideologies East and West were the very opposite of what people of goodwill hoped for. The world they wished for after Western colonial and quasi-colonial wars and Soviet invasions ended was the world of convergence of the two systems with mild social democracy in both. Dissolution of, the dissolution of warmongering alliances and the end of militarism. They got nothing of the sort. One system swallowed the other. Social democracy died or was corrupted or co-opted by the rich. And militarism, through adventuresome foreign invasions and NATO expansion, became the new norm. In the former Third World, the victory of the West led to the reinterpretation of the struggle against colonialism. It was now shorn of all its domestically progressive elements. 
and this facilitated massive corruption in the newly liberated countries. The trivialists, I really like this word, the trivialists, the intellectuals who misunderstood, either because of their lack of perspicacity or pure self-interest, the nature of the changes in Eastern Europe, proclaimed the revolutions of 1989 to have been the revolutions of liberalism, multiculturalism and democracy. They failed to notice that if they were the revolutions of multiculturalism and tolerance, there was hardly any need to break multinational states. Nay, that such a breakup was antithetical to the idea of multiculturalism. Nationalism was thus conflated with democracy. The trivialists succeeded in turning the progressiveness of the post-war on its head. Instead of development and progress meaning a combination of the best elements of market, capitalist economy and socialism, elimination of power politics in world affairs and the adherence to the rules of the United Nations, progressiveness in their new reading of history meant unbridled market economics at home, liberal international order of unequal power abroad and pensée unique in ideology. Instead of a social democratic capitalism with peace, to be progressive began to mean neoliberalism with a permission to wage war on anyone who disagreed with it. Instead of mild and innocuous mixture of socialism and capitalism at home and equal power of all states internationally, we got served the power of the rich at home and the power of big countries internationally. It was a weird return to the quasi-colonial hegemony taking place incongruously at first at the time of the liberal victory. The rest, from today's perspective, seems almost preordained. The virulent nationalism of Eastern Europe that fueled the revolutions of 1989 finally engulfed the most, country in, most powerful country in that part of the world, Russia. Xenophobic nationalism is the same everywhere in Estonia, Serbia, Ukraine, Russia or Azerbaijan. But the greater the country, the more destabilising and imperialistic it is. What began as the nationalist revolutions in Eastern Europe ends now as the revolution of unchained nationalism in Russia. The same ideological movement but with the regain of lost territories as its objective rather than their liberation. The rule of the rich locally and of the powerful internationally seems so ideologically entrenched today that no hope of betterment, no hope of national nor economic equality seems on the horizon. A lot of the responsibility for this disastrous state of affairs lies with the trivialists, the intellectual elite who defined, promoted and defended this pernicious ideology of inequality. The hopelessness envelops not only the present where we stand on the precipice of the extinction of a part of humankind, but the future too. Progressive thought has been vitiated, remodelled and extirpated. The medieval darkness under the name of liberty is descending. Wow. I mean, um, it's a bit of a shame to end the week with that, but that is powerful writing. And I have to say it resonates with a lot of the conversations I've been having over the last few weeks. I hope he's wrong. I'm sure Branko hopes he's wrong. Um, and hopefully he'll write another post explaining why he's wrong and give us all a bit something to cling to. He's coming to the LSE in the autumn to talk about uh, how the pandemic has affected inequality, which is going to be exciting. Um, but in the meantime, at least the hot weather's over for, uh, for us in the UK. Have a good weekend. Talk to you next week. Goodbye.